And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books? Nonfiction? It's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, I am Harmony. I'm Maggie. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club, where this week we're talking about the Brown Sisters trilogy by Talia Hibbert. Yes! So Maggie is the person who introduced me to this trilogy, but she initially, before this podcast, had only read the first book, Get a Life, Chloe Brown. So after reading the whole series, Maggie, do you have any thoughts, like any changes in perspective? What what are your reactions? I think so. I liked Get a Life, Chloe Brown, but it wasn't my favorite. And I think that, and I really, really liked Take a Hint, Danny Brown and Act Your Age, Eve Brown. So I think that I learned two important things after finishing the trilogy. The first being that the perspective that Get a Life, Chloe Brown was actually one of the very first contemporary romances that I ever read. And I was really, really new to the genre. So I think it makes sense that It maybe got a lower rating for me as I was still so new to figuring out what my tastes and preferences were. But I think more importantly for me, it really highlighted to me the fact that for me, romance is very, very much an escapist genre. Get a Life, Chloe Brown deals a lot with physical ailments, essentially. Chloe has fibromyalgia and chronic migraines. And I have chronic migraines and severe, severe, severe asthma, which is very different than fibromyalgia, but does have a Venn diagram of symptoms. And I loved that representation. But also for me, I think it took something away from my enjoyment of the story because I was looking for something to get me away from my life. And that wasn't necessarily the medium that I personally was trying to see myself and that aspect of my life represented in, if that makes sense. And I think that that representation is still extremely important. I'm really glad it exists. I think that Talia Hibbert does a really, really great job of emphasizing the fact that every single person, no matter what your life circumstances or life situation is, deserves to have a fun, sexy, engaging romance in your life. But for what I'm specifically looking for out of the romance genre, I think that it didn't quite work for me to see that aspect of my life represented. Interesting. So wait, why didn't it work for you to see that aspect of your life represented? Was it because you needed to step into more of a fantasy mode to enjoy romance? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I really don't want to be reading anything. Like, I want true extreme escapism. And also, if you're currently suffering with a migraine and trying to engage with a piece of media or I'm in pain because of my asthma constantly, it's tedious to be experiencing that in your own body. And then also dealing with the mental experience of describing of somebody else describing that experience really accurately. And I think that maybe in a different moment, I could have found that comforting. But at that time, it was very much just I just want to be forgetting as much as I can that all of this shit is happening to me. I don't necessarily want to be connecting with a character in this way at this moment. But I am emphasizing that this is a personal thing and a personal choice because obviously 
it's fantastic that this really wide range of representation exists in romance novels. And I know that a lot of people really enjoyed it. It's just not what I was looking for out of my reading experience. Okay, I understand. I understand. That's fair. It makes sense. I had a very different experience, of course. And Get a Life, Chloe Brown, I think is actually my favorite of the novels of the three. I don't know why. It just, it hits differently. And maybe it's because it was my introduction, my reintroduction into romance. And it was so fantastic. But I also don't have a lot of bodily ailments. So... <laughs> so it was still very much escapism for me. That makes sense. I've seen other reviewers who also suffer with chronic migraines or also suffer with general, my body does not work the way that I wish that it would constantly, who really appreciated that. It's just not, it, it just was a lot for me to take in at that moment, you know? I get that. So let's give a brief summary of each of the novels, which, well, I mean, we'll start with Get a Life, Chloe Brown, but do you want to handle that or you want me to do it? I think if you do Chloe, I read the other two in the past two days and have a strong sense of what happened in those. Okay. All right. So Get a Life, Chloe Brown is about a, we don't actually know her age, but I, I'm assuming she's a 30-something person who has fibromyalgia, as Maggie said before. And she, since developing fibromyalgia, has kind of lived a sheltered life. She's been really careful because she's found out that when she pushes her body too hard, it really hurts. And when she initially got fibromyalgia, which we don't see in the novel, this is years afterwards, a lot of her friends and support system outside of her family gradually went away. They they went their separate ways. They weren't really there to support her through her sickness because a lot of people didn't even know that she was sick to begin with because for a while she was undiagnosed and people like her fiance at the time didn't necessarily believe that she was sick. So she ends up walking one day and witnesses a car accident and it's kind of near death, near life, death, near death experience. <laughs> and she decides that she needs to start living her life more actively, especially now that she's got her sickness more in control and has adapted her life to it. She's decided that she doesn't want to be afraid anymore. She wants to live her life to the fullest. And so she makes a list of all of these things that she thinks will help her live her life to the fullest. And one of them is moving out. And when she moves out, she meets this very sexy superintendent who she also hates. And he hates her too because she's posh and a bit uppity and kind of mean. And <laughs> they end up befriending each other to help her finish this list, even though they kind of hate each other. And discovering that they, they like each other. They were initially attracted to each other, but now they discover that they maybe like each other's personalities. And they end up having sex. And then they end up really liking each other. And a romance blooms, and it's beautiful. And the artist is named Red, and he... Oh, I'm sorry, the superintendent is an artist, and he's named Red, and he's awesome. And it's just like a really sexy good time. Oh, and Red has his own shit, because Red, before Chloe, was in an abusive relationship that kind of blew up his entire life. <laughs> All right, Maggie, your turn. <laughs> 
Tell us about Danica. So that's the first book. The second book is called Take a Hit, Danny Brown. And it obviously follows Danny, who's the middle sister in this in this trio of sisters. And this is more of a, if we're going by tropes, this is a friends to lovers with fake dating in the mix. And also like a, a fuck buddy situation going on, which for me is a trio of tropes that really worked. Danny is getting her PhD and she is one of those people that is like extremely work driven. Her entire life is really focused around preparing for and making sure that her work is the top notch it can possibly be. And essentially just trying to be the tippity top in her field. She's doing her PhD in English literature with a focus in gender and sexuality studies, which is really, really interesting to read about. And when she gets stuck in an elevator during a gas drill at the beginning of the novel, her friend Zoff comes and rescues her and he carries her out of the building because she is being very silly after this whole experience. And it gets caught online and blasted through all social media and they go viral for this like very sweet and sexy moment, which benefits off because he runs a nonprofit called Tackle It that's based on his past as a rugby player and also his past as somebody who's went through a lot of trauma. So he does physical coaching in rugby and also emotional coaching to help kids. And he realizes eventually that all of this attention has been really, really good for the charity that he runs. So he asks Danny to do kind of a fake dating bit for about a month to sort of keep this attention up. She says, yes, they decide to be fuck buddies when they figure out that their mutual attraction is really high. The reason they decide to be fuck buddies is because due to a prior experience, Danny feels like she's not really fit for essentially romance and relationships. And it's really just the story of watching them navigate the situation of fuck buddies to falling in love and the pitfalls that come with that as they're both sort of dealing with two sets of very different emotional trauma that happened to them in their past. And then last we've got Eve Brown. And then last, we've got Eve Brown. Actor age, Eve Brown follows the youngest sister, Eve, who has had a really hard time figuring out what she wants to do in life and is facing a lot of pressure from her parents to sort that out to the point where they take pretty drastic action and cut her off from her trust fund and essentially kick her out of their home. And as she's kind of dealing with all of this, she stumbles upon chef interviews at a B&B. She has some limited professional experience as being a chef. So she kind of decides, all right, fine, I'm going to follow this door. I'm going to see where it leads, where she finds Jacob and Mont, who are interviewing for the chef position. Jacob owns the B&B. Jacob is a very straightforward, no-nonsense, looking for a very competent chef who is the opposite of chaos like very rigid knows what they're up to Mont's a little bit more laid back in the situation and due to a series of mishaps including Eve accidentally hitting Jacob with her car Mont hires Eve to kind of stay at the B&B be the chef and the story really follows Eve and Jacob it's like a workplace romance but it's also largely about them kind of understanding each other Eve understanding herself a lot more and the story of how they fall in love and navigate that situation. And the real tension in that story is the ethics of this workplace romance, whether they can make that work. And also Jacob has autism and is very aware that when he's in romantic situations, he's very all or nothing. So there's also a sense for him of 
trying to manage the situation in such a way that he can get what he needs emotionally, which is complicated by the workplace aspect. Okay, wonderful. So I think we need to lay some groundwork. The Brown sisters all have a few commonalities, and all of these stories have commonalities within their shared commonalities, I guess. So the Brown sisters are, all three of them, uh, descended from this wonderful, famous Hollywood starlet at one point in time named Gigi, who started the Brown family by herself, essentially, after she got pregnant with the Brown sister's father at 16 or 15 or something crazy. And she ran off with her lover at the time, I guess, but he's not in the picture and hasn't been in the picture throughout any of the girls' lives. So she went on and made herself a bunch of money by being a starlet. And she's fabulous. She's in, she's bi, she's in a lesbian relationship throughout, or a woman-loving woman relationship throughout the book series. And that's kind of the premise. So that's the premise for where these girls grew up. So they grew up in a very stable, loving household with this eccentric grandmother who acts as kind of a fairy godmother. She plays the sage role throughout each of the books. She steps in and gives each of the girls advice on love. And each of the girls also, we discover, once we read Eve Brown, probably have autism. Eve suspects that her entire family has it, which was, when I was reading Eve Brown for the first time, kind of mind-blowing to me, which we'll talk about later when we're digging into Eve Brown. But as I revisited the first two books after uh, for this episode, you can definitely see it throughout. So they're they're all very blunt and they're all very privileged. They're described as posh because they're English. So there's weird class dynamics that Maggie and I probably can't super pick up on to the extent that somebody that lives in the UK can, but we're going to try and cover that too. But they're all they all have this really remarkable talent for wanting to help people and trying to understand people and extending some sort of grace. And all three of the sisters have some sort of trauma in their lives despite living incredibly privileged lives, which I think is important too because the three heroes that we meet have more explicit traumas, but everyone's dealing with their own sort of shit. Are there any commonalities that you picked up on, Maggie? Ooh, I would say as much as these are romances, these are also three books that are really about self-discovery of what it takes to make an individual happy. Chloe's story is about finding that new balance for her that makes her feel like she's living an active lifestyle while also managing her physical ailments, which speaking from experience is way easier said than it is done. And it's a journey and it's not necessarily a linear one for Chloe, which I really did appreciate. Danny's journey is more about the fact that There's life outside of work and you're allowed to be really serious about your work and also find joy in other aspects of your life and allow yourself to be happy. And also understanding that one traumatically failed relationship in her mind doesn't necessarily mean that one isn't fit for romance forever and kind of that emotional journey that she goes on. And then the commonality I think in that with Eve is also understanding that just because the skills we have feel like they don't necessarily align with society doesn't mean we're bad at everything and that we have so much value to give to the world. And 
it's okay to take whatever path you need to, to figure out what's going to make you happy with the skills that you have, even if it doesn't necessarily fit society's prescription of you go to school and then you probably go to more school and then you get a job and then you, you know, maybe get married and have kids or whatever. It's okay if that path looks different for you. I also think part of what makes these books so appealing from a reading standpoint, these are all three Black females. They're all, they're all not skinny. <laughs> they're, they're all described as larger in some extent. And they're all really confident. In addition to having some personality traits like we talked about before, they all probably have autism that could be, you know, uh, that could be looked down upon in some societal standards. But this book does a great job of addressing that without ever making it demeaning, if that makes sense. There are various insecurities that all three of these characters have, but at their core, they know that they are all they know that they are all good people <laughs> and they know that they are all beautiful. And that's just done really well. And that's part of what makes it such a joy to read, because even though we talk about the fact that differences are marginalized in various extents throughout the books, they're still accepted. And I don't know, I haven't read a book like that before, I don't think, that like just fully embraces difference in such a wonderful way. I have, but they've all been recent publications. And for me, none of them have been in the romance genre specifically. But I think that what Talia Hibbert does is not break people down into certain characteristics or certain character traits, right? All of these women are women and Black and plus size and probably like on the, the autistic. autistic spectrum somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> and those things are never broken down. Oh, okay, we're going to focus on X thing in Chloe's book and Y thing in Danny's book and Z thing in Eve's book. Some of those things are highlighted differently in each of the books, but it's just because of what each sister as an individual is thinking about rather than it feeling like, oh, okay, this is the sister's problem in some way. It's just like, yeah. no, these are their whole entire identities. And at different points, they think differently about all of those aspects of that. And they find within themselves the ability to love all of that about about themselves, which I think is very realistic to how people in the real world function. But often when you're reading a book and you're reading characters is not really how people are portrayed, I think. Yes, I think for me, as somebody that suffers from a lot of insecurities, it was refreshing because even if you want to love yourself, and I think a lot of people do, when you have things that society deems as not okay, it's 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 hard. Like, it's hard not to have these really horrible thoughts. But these three characters don't have those thoughts. At least we don't see them. And I think they're all at places in their lives where they're not constantly berating themselves about their weight or about their very specific personality traits. Yeah, it's refreshing to see a book where the journey of self-discovery isn't the way I am is okay, even if society says that it's wrong or different or should be marginalized in some way. Those books are also, I think, really important. But it was really refreshing to see a group of characters who have dealt with that and are good with themselves for the most part and are on a different journey of self-actualization of what makes them happy in life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think for me, that's one of the very special parts of this book, right? Because we can 
we can focus on things that actually matter because <laughs> these women are already developed and they're they're fine being developed. <laughs> and I think that part of that and part of what makes this book work or this series work is that all of that is happening and the relationships are still hot and still steamy and the sex is still very sexy, which yeah. I think only emphasizes the fact that to me so much of the message of this book is that everybody deserves the love that they're looking for, you know? And because these are romance novels, there's obviously an emphasis on romantic love, but these novels are also about sisterhood and friendship in many ways and navigating those relationships as well. But you can be a fully well-rounded, actualized person on your path to happiness and still be having really hot sex and having this romantic relationship that's fantastic. And I feel like in some ways, that's the idealized escapism version of life. Don't get me wrong. But I think it's important that in a romance novel, the romance aspects of it are just as strong as everything else that's happening. To me, that's also part of the magic here. I agree. I most certainly agree. Okay, so do you have, to get it a little bit light and fluffier, do you have a favorite love interest? We've talked a little bit uh, about this off air. Oh, do I have a favorite love interest? I think maybe Jacob. I finished, and and it's hard to say, I think a little (laughs) bit, because I did, I just read Eve Brown, and I finished it yesterday, and it's the last book that I read, so obviously there's probably some, like, recency bias happening here. But yeah, I think for me, it might be Jacob. He, in some ways, really reminded me of my husband, which probably helped. But like, I think it's really that a lot of the trope there is grump sunshine, where Jacob is kind of grumpy for a lot of the book, and Eve is very much sunshine. And I'm really into that dynamic. I married that dynamic. Like, (laughs) so I think that for me, Jacob really did it for me by the end. That's so funny. I think Jacob is a cute character, but he's too grumpy for me. He's like way too grumpy for me. (laughs) Oh yeah, no, I love it. (laughs) For me, it's definitely a tie between Red and Sophia because Red has red hair. And I read these via audiobook. Maggie already knows all this. So this is just for you listeners. But if you read the audiobook of Get a Life, Chloe Brown, Red's voice is just so sexy. The reader just does something. (laughs) It's just so amazing and beautiful. And, you know, he's kind of got that hipster vibe, which I just can't help. But I don't know. I don't know. I'm cliche. And then I also really love Sophia because he's just so, he's just such a sweetheart. And he's described really sexily. I think that all of the the women are described sexily. But Red's, Red's eye for Chloe, damn, Chloe, Chloe is really sexy too. It's something, he describes her lips at one point and it's just, oh, my heart. But yeah, Zafia, beautiful, very sexy. Red, very sexy too. Jacob is also sexy, I'm sure, but I've just dated so many, you know, like nerdy white guys in my life (laughs) that I'm just kind of over it. (laughs) See, that's funny. I feel like in theory, Red should be my answer because he's the artist and he drives the motorcycle and he's like got the bad, like sort of the bad boy vibes going on, which like is something that I'm into. But it's funny. I think that is one of those things where my real life has has ruined that trope for me a little bit because I work with artists constantly and I work Mm -hmm. with artists who are portrayed as being similar to Red. 
And I just, it, it, it's not like that in real life. And I, I have too much knowledge to really fall into being, ah, you know? Yeah, I get that. Red has some traits that some of my past relationships have had too that are almost a little bit, ooh, I don't like that. And some of his reaction responses, I could not deal with that as a relationship. So I totally, I totally get where you're coming from with the real life ruining some of this, these fantastical elements. I think that, that having said this, I'm not sleeping on Zoth. That man was described beautifully. <sighs> and the way that he just has so much caring empathy for Danny is so attractive and he's also very just I don't know okay with a relationship that feels kind of non-traditional in the sense that Danny doesn't have to make space in her very very busy life for him for him to feel like he's a priority and she does eventually come to the conclusion that that's what she wants to do but he's not trying to force her to be somebody that she's not at any point he knows that she's a really serious academic he's fine if it with fitting into the slots of her life where they already naturally fit in together and as that continues to grow he never asks her to change that aspect of herself and that for me was really really refreshing because in some ways chloe and red's relationship feels a little bit more like a traditional relationship to me. And even Jacob's very much feels like a more traditional relationship to me. And then Danny and Zoff are kind of just doing what works for them. And as long as it's working for the two of them, that's totally fine. I agree. That's one of my big attractions to Zavia, Zavia too, because I don't know, Maggie and I kind of talked about this a little bit off air when she was reading Danny Brown and she was talking about Sophia and I was like, he's got, and I sent her a bi wife energy video, which is a TikTok song. If you haven't looked it up, it's adorable. To me, he really does embody that bi wife energy, not just because he's with a bi woman, but because he's, he's so open to having his viewpoints changed and to doing what works and just focusing on love. In a way that, as Maggie described earlier, feels really non-traditional. And to me, it's it's even more beautiful because he is kind of a more traditional person. He loves romance novels. He wants that fairy tale ending. So being open to these different things for love is, I don't know, it's just so beautiful and cute. It is. I'm sorry. I was laughing because when Harmony and I were having this conversation... She was trying to build up this moment where she was like, he's got, and then sent me the video, but it took her a second to find the video. And my instinct was to say, was to say he's got anxiety. He does <laughs> have anxiety. True, <laughs> which is true, but it was just a very funny moment. But I also loved that about him. I feel like Talia Hibbert did such a great job describing anxiety. And I think for me, what was really important, describing what it's been like to have anxiety for a long time and dealing with it for a long time. I think that's something that I love so much about novels that talk about people in their late 20s and early 30s, especially now that I'm in that age range, is that we're not seeing characters who are figuring shit out for the first time. There is a space for all of that. Those novels are really, really important. But I think it's just as important to see characters who have been dealing with a variety of issues for a really long time and they've got their methodologies figured out and now it's just kind of a part of their lives and sometimes they wish it wasn't a part of their lives still but for the most part it's managed and they know what they're up to and they're just like handling things for me that was so comforting because I feel like so much of the media that I see that's about mental health issues is constantly about people in 
a really, really deep, bad place and either starting to come out of that or sort of being stuck there. And those stories are good, but it's so nice to just see a story of somebody being like, yep, I have anxiety. This is going to happen sometimes. This is how I deal with it. The way you're dealing, you're helping me dealing with, with it right now is actually great. Let's keep this up. We could have a conversation about it, but it's not like dominating my entire existence. Yeah. And I think too, as somebody that struggles with mental health issues from time to time and who has been in relationships with people who struggle with mental health issues from time to time, it can be really hard when you're first in the midst of dealing with something like anxiety, like depression, like trauma in Red's case, right? He has a lot of big trauma reactions. It's really hard not to let that fall into your partner in a way that becomes unfair to them. Because these are emotional reactions, right? And we know when we're dealing with something emotional and big that we can't super control, it's a lot harder for us to just control ourselves. So what I think you're saying about people understanding themselves better in their 20s and 30s, I think is really important. Because in these books, even with Red, who at one point does let his emotional reaction fall onto Chloe in an unfair way. He has the ability to reflect on it. She already knows about it. They're able to talk about it and come together again. With Zafia, it's the same way, right? He never lets his anxiety manifest in a way that becomes actively harmful and unfair to Danny. And I think, too, even with Jacob as well, that also kind of manifests. Jacob also has really real world trauma because he's been neglected his entire, he was neglected throughout his childhood and he is dealing too with his autism responses. And so like, you can see even from the very beginning, he's like, wait, am I judging this person unfairly? He has a a matter of methodologies to kind of check and make sure that his emotional response isn't going to be actively harmful towards other people. Or if it is, he's able to reflect on it and address it in a really healthy manner. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that all of that's really important. And something that's really prized in all three of these novels that I think is related to all of this is that clear communication is really, really important. From what I remember in the first book with Chloe, there's a little bit of a miscommunication trip that happens between her and Red. But to me, it felt pretty realistic as it was happening, the kind of miscommunication that genuinely happens in everyday life. And with Zoff and Danny, I mean, he has moments where he's not clearly communicating because he's trying to figure out what he wants and what he's okay with and sort of also navigate the fact that Danny had communicated a set of wants and needs and he was trying to figure that out. But once they both figure themselves out, clear communication is the most important part. And between Jacob and Eve, It's a little bit different because they start out not particularly liking or understanding each other. But for almost all of that novel, one of their biggest strengths is the fact that they communicate better with each other than they do with anybody else. And that's such a novel and unique feeling for them. And they and that's so much of what makes them fall in love with each other is the fact that they just get and understand each other. And I feel like that clear communication aspect is... It's just lacking in so many of the other romance novels that I read and is such an important part of being in any kind of relationship, but I feel like especially in a romantic relationship. Yeah, I agree. I think, I I just, I agree. I think that each of these people put a lot of consideration towards their partner or their soon-to-be partner and how their soon-to-be partner communicates. and. I think that this 
these book series do a really good job of recognizing that even if you're considering your communication differences, you can still have these hurtful miscommunications because the central conflicts in each of these books, the, the, the part where things really progress and break and then we have to get back together are always communication differences. But both parties recognize as it's happening why the miscommunication is happening to a certain extent. There's some self-realization. They just can't stop it. And this is one of the reasons why when I talk about these books, I talk about them kind of bringing a love blueprint for me because I'm somebody who has a lot of emotional reactions (laughs) and various mental health issues. And I really want to focus on communication throughout my relationships because that's the only way that people can actually understand each other and come together is if they verbalize things. But it is, it's just so hard sometimes when you're in the midst of an emotion to recognize this is the way this other person processes. They just do a really good job. They just do a great job of like dealing with relationship messiness in a really realistic way without ever getting too dark and grimy, even though all of these people have experienced kind of dark and grimy things. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And I think part of that is Talia Hibbert being smart in the time period that she set all of these relationships in all of these individuals' lives. But I think it's also just Talia Hibbert being like, clear communication is sexy. <laughs> like, I, I, you know, that and it is because it's so much the basis of a relationship. And I think that it's important, too, because all of the relationships happen relatively fast. Red and Chloe have known and been aware of each other for a while, but that one's very much sort of an enemies to lovers sort of vibe. And the time where they actually get to know each other is relatively short. Danny and Zoff's whole friends to fuck buddies to in a relationship thing happens in about month, a month period of time, even though they had known each other for a long time beforehand. And even Jacob meet for the first time at the beginning of the novel and by the end of the novel are together. And I feel like it's that communication and how much we see them share between themselves that make that kind of condensed time period still feel realistic. And okay, in all three of this, these situations, I totally understand how in the real world, something like this could happen, you know? I think part of that might be a part of romance writing. I don't think I've seen a lot of romance novels where people take years or like six months before they start their their big romance or become committed to each other. I think that it's yeah. it's hard to, to write a book like that. It kind of has to take place in a short condensed frame. But you're right. The fact that so much communication goes on in that condensed frame does make it so much more sellable. And I think, too, if I had one criticism of these books, it's that I wish that Talia Hibbert played a little bit more, I think, with the structure of a of a typical contemporary romance novel, in that all three of these books have that third act climax that makes essentially every single couple break up for a period and then realize that they were stupid and that they should just get back together. And that's the the way the novel ends. And I get that. That's a convention of the genre. It works it's really, really great. But I feel like especially in Eve's story, to me, it just didn't feel necessary. So I'm hopeful that in the future, Talia Hibbert might stray away from that a little bit. Because I think, and and to be fair, I read the last two novels back to back, so it probably didn't help. But 
it just felt a little bit like, okay, well now we have to, conf- we have to create some conflict to drive them apart. When in reality, I would have been happy just seeing them work through something else or not really having a conflict that had to do with the relationship at all be part of that third act. That's fair. Yeah, that would be interesting if the conflict was more external. I kind of, I don't remember Eve Brown as much because that's the only book that I didn't get to fully reread through before the podcast. So I'm not entirely sure on the specifics, but I do like that at least for the first two novels, the conflicts are relationship driven. I think that that, I think that because I'm so invested in using these as tools for bettering my own communication and relationship skills, that it's really important to me that we recognize that people have differences and can get into these big emotional things. And I don't think that it necessarily needs to mean that both parties split off and break up each, each time that a big, relationship conflict happens but I do see why that's kind of necessary for the drama of it (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. I mean it it, it, there's a reason it's a convention of the drama of the genre right it it works and it works because of all of the reasons that you just outlined and it's important to see I think relationships go through periods of tumultuousness I just think that for me especially reading these guys back to back it felt a little bit all right, what's going to be the thing, you know? And I think for me, especially in Eve's novel, it was less of a third act thing and more of a fourth act fourth act thing. So the whole thing happened and got resolved in 30 pages that were happening in the last 50 pages of the novel, if that makes sense. And I was like, I think for me, just personally, I was a little bit like, I think we could have potentially done away with this specific aspect of it. But I do get why as a whole, she made that choice, why it's more sellable. It just didn't particularly work for me. Having said that, I still gave Eve and Danny 4.5 stars out of 5. It's it's really the only criticism I have, but it's just, I figured I'd air it. That's perfectly fine. All right, so I have a few things that we haven't touched as much on, a couple of things really, and that is class and mm-hmm. disability more in depth in terms of this realization about autism. And Mm -hmm. which one do you want to pivot to? We could talk about class a little bit. That was really one of the major themes that I felt was really interesting throughout all three novels, especially in that all three uh, girls have a very, all three women have a very different understanding and relationship with their own class privilege. And it really culminates, I think, smartly in Eve's story because Eve of the three of them has the least amount of awareness of her class privilege and she has to do a lot of learning really really fast while she's talking to Jacob but that's also then kind of weaponized against her a little bit by her parents so it's a really really interesting tension to me okay all right I want to hear more about that (laughs) I mean it wasn't a huge part of the novel but when this huge blow up happens at the beginning between Eve and her parents, her parents very explicitly say, you know, they do the thing everybody hates when they have siblings uh, because they compare her to her sisters. And they're like, Danny and Chloe have a sense of what's going on here. Danny and Chloe deserve their, their trust funds. Danny and Chloe work for everything they have. And they always have worked for everything that they have. And, you know, which is when, arguable when, by the way, like, like, they very do, arguable. Yeah, they, 
part, but they still definitely benefit from the fact that they have this trust fund at the back of their pocket. Yeah. And then and then her father Martin tries to guilt her because he's like, you know, I gave you all of this because me and Gigi had nothing when I was growing up and I did all of this work to get us here, which is true, arguably, given the character arcs. But that weaponization with her parents was just, to me, it just felt so, this is not useful talking about class in any way. And also everybody's capacity for work in general is different. And I think that the class aspects in Eve were so unique because it was her really connecting with somebody who was of a different class for what it felt like was kind of the first time and him calling her out when she said stuff that was genuinely stupid and out of touch (laughs) but also doing it in a way that was gentle you know he wasn't mad at her it wasn't like a friendship ending situation it was just it was just like Eve really let's back this up here and Eve became actively thought about being more aware of that when she was talking to him throughout the whole thing, which was really, really nice. But it was also for Eve a sense of understanding of, I think, the concept of work in general and the fact that she hadn't, that like she had a really big dream crushing situation happen to her in what she thought was her dream job of performing when she was really young, totally reshaped the way that she thought about work and what she had to be doing in a way that I found to be an actually useful discussion. And what Jacob and her kind of actualize as they communicate is the fact that it's okay that her skills are largely based in helping people. It's okay that she loves to cook. And also it's okay that it took her a long time to figure out what direction she wanted to go because she did have this big dream crushing thing happen to her when she was younger that completely disillusioned her to the fact that the work world fucking sucks, you know? Maggie and I have talked a little bit about this before, about this idea of romance novels kind of pushing up against capitalist perspectives and ideals. And this is a little bit different, right? Because each of our main characters comes from such immense class privilege. But in Eve, I think that we see that pushing up against it a lot more because Eve does have her different relationship to labor. And that's where a lot of her insecurities come from. As Maggie mentioned, different people have different capacities. And Eve just doesn't feel like she is at all even useful because she hasn't found yet where her skills fit in and where she can labor in a meaningful and productive way. And I think going off of that too, hasn't found a workplace that has given her the accommodation she needs essentially to work at her best. And this is kind of blending conversations a little bit, but a lot of what clues Eve in and clues Jacob into the fact that she might also be on the autism spectrum is the fact that she really needs that music to focus. And that even if she's not actively listening to something, singing and being involved in music in some way helps her focus. And we discover when she kind of goes through the self-actualization that being able to have one AirPod in and being able to sing is actually really a disability accommodation and it's really necessary for her. And she's never really been in a work environment that allows her to utilize what she needs in order to be her best self. Yeah, I think you're right. I think I've talked a little bit about how I relate to Eve Brown and not to blend different themes too much, 
But when I first read Eve Brown, I was a little annoyed by the fact that we discover that she's autistic instead of ADHD because she has all of the same symptoms as somebody who deals with ADHD does. And that's not always viewed as a disability. And it's not for everyone, but it can be. And so I think initially I was a little annoyed because I would have liked to see that taken seriously as a disability and seen real accommodations built for that. I don't know where I'm going with this. I just think that the fact that the the way this pushes up against capitalism is the fact that recognizing where accommodations can be and where our different labor capacities are. And I guess all all three books, even though we have that immense class privilege, kind of do the same thing because Chloe, too, has different accommodations for her work schedule. She still relies somewhat on the money that she gets from her trust fund, but she needs accommodations because she cannot always keep the same work schedule and everything that she does is flexible. She's able to work at her own pace. And with Danny too, the the ending of her novel is partly about, hey, I don't have to work as hard as I do. I can make room in my life for balance and fun and remembering to eat and sleep, which I think is something a lot of doctorate students can relate to, but also just anyone dealing with a regular 40-hour week schedule, depending on what your capacity is, it's hard to balance work and life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that the tricky thing about class here is that I think that to a certain extent, the class privilege of all three of these women advances some of the escapist natures of the book a little bit, because I think in many ways unfortunately real life doesn't always work like that where like you can start your own business so that you can be in charge so that you can manage your schedule in a way that actually works with your body and the way it functions and a lot of people don't have the ability to you know jump from job to job to job until they figure out what it is they actually like to do in life so I think that that's also an aspect of this class privilege but I I feel like Talia Hibbert balances that escapist aspect of it with all of these real life conversations. And also I think showcases so much the fact that making accommodations for people is actually really, really fucking easy. It's just that dominant society doesn't want to do it. You know? Yeah, I agree. I also want to talk a little bit about the class differences. I mean, you've kind of talked about it a little bit with Eve and Jacob, but none of the the heroes, the love interests in these books are posh as they put it and that particularly comes up in chloe brown because red has red out of everyone i think has a negative traumatic experience dealing with the attitudes of the wealthy and elite yeah (laughs) sorry no it's just that's true (laughs) that that's true uh it's really and and i think it's also important that that dynamic is set up and pushed up against and contended with so hard in the first book in the series because it really sets the tone for the whole thing we have this this setup that is kind of escapist in the sense of we're dealing with very very rich women here but it's immediately pushed up against because part of the reason that red doesn't like chloe to begin with is because she's so obviously rich And I think, too, again, we're blending themes here, but that also so, to me, talks about parts of our identity that are really visible to people versus parts of our identity that aren't very visible to people. Because part of what breaks Red down is understanding that Chloe has a lot of invisible disabilities that you wouldn't necessarily know about just looking at her and understanding that 
her class privilege is only one aspect of who she is and what she's up to and kind of extending that empathy and building that relationship. But then also Chloe does dealing with Red and learning more about Red also forces Chloe to look at her life differently as well and be like, well, why has he had all of these terrible experiences and what part do I play in that larger system? That's one of the really special things about this book, these these books for me. So I think I've been kind of upfront about the fact that I grew up in poverty, <laughs> right? And as an adult, having primarily middle-class friends or friends that grew up in a different economic situation, I didn't realize as a kid and now as an adult, I'm really realizing the different effects and different life experiences that can happen with that. But I think that one of these things, these books do so well, as we kind of alluded to, and as Maggie essentially just stated, is the fact that everyone has their own trauma, and that still needs to be respected, no matter whether we're the most marginalized. That's just not how marginalization, that's not how intersectionality intersectionality works. There are different situations in terms of marginalization. I, as a white woman have the capacity to oppress Black men, because that's the way history has worked. And that's what we've done throughout history. Black men still oppress women, but that's not that's it's just not hierarchical in that same sense. There are hierarchies and there are hierarchies with certain things. But that doesn't mean that everyone that that there is like, a top person who has no capacity for marginalization. Because the world does work that way, right? The world works in these big traumatic things. And I think growing up, becoming a part of becoming an adult for me was realizing that even though someone had a perfect family structure at home and had enough money throughout their lives, had help paying for college, doesn't mean that they don't get to have anxiety or depression or any of these other personal traumas that may have been really tragic for them and that their experiences aren't any less valid than mine. I think too what you bring up is that there is no one hierarchy that rules the entire world. There's maps and maps and maps of hierarchies that are plastered onto every single situation and it's why there's no one size fits all. The way that this book deals with trauma is also a reminder that one's position in all of these hierarchies changes constantly. An example for me is that I grew up a neurotypical person and then went through extreme trauma and developed PTSD and now have acquired neurodivergence, which is a really interesting and strange space to occupy because I often don't feel neurodivergent in the same way that a lot of my ND friends are, but I'm also definitely not neurotypical. And I also can map very, very clearly the parts of my personality that were neurotypical and are not anymore. So it's like all of this stuff is a constantly changing battlefield. And it's also okay to extend grace to yourself that stuff can happen to you that's going to change your position in the world. And we can all hope that it means that Things are getting better, but that's not always the case. And it's okay to have to take a step back, deal with that, digest that, and then move forward. When we go on this journey of recognizing our privilege, it can get really hard for people to be to recognize that they have traumas. That's a journey I'm kind of going on right now, right? To be like, oh, wait, my trauma does still matter. That does not mean that that has to stop my fight for justice at all. But this is traumatic for me and I need to give myself space to feel that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I really want to talk about the different manifestations of autism because these book series 
I don't know a lot about autism, so I'm going to state that out front. I'm sorry if I say anything offensive, but this is a part of my larger discovery about how disability justice works. And these book series really did change and shape the way that I thought about disability throughout, right? And we've even kind of talked about it a little bit so far, but like the fact that Eve hasn't found a great place for her skill set and labor to, to to make sense in a work environment versus her sisters who also likely have autism, but are able to work at, they're, they're able to work in this very set structure, right? I don't know, Maggie, I wanted to know what your experiences were reading this book in, in terms of thinking about mental disability. Yeah, I think that that's a really, really great question. And I really it like talking about privilege it was it was really one of those moments where eve eve's story and watching all of her journey of self-discovery really i feel like if i say the phrase put me in my place that has negative connotations but i don't mean it negatively it just really reshaped the way that i thought about the autism spectrum because at the beginning of the book there's a trigger warning and a content warning which we should probably share anyways which <laughs> is that there is anti-autism content in the book occasionally as people are interacting with Jacob. And it's stated right at the front of the book that Jacob is on the autism spectrum. It's one of the first things he discloses to Eve because it's what's happening. And then slowly as you read the book, you see all the ways in which Eve and Jacob are similar. And it just really makes you think about all the different ways in which autism can present differently in women that really forces, I think, somebody who doesn't have autism, like I do not, to really evaluate what our stereotypes are in relation to being on the autism spectrum, but then also think about the sexism within that and the fact that a lot of the the markers that we think about as being associated with autism really don't present in women. And then you go back and you think about Eve or you think about Danny and Chloe and you think about some of the things that Eve specifically marks out and you're like, oh yeah, I totally see that Talia Hibbert was setting this up this whole time. But because I haven't been trained to think about the world in this way, I didn't pick up on it until Eve said it at the end. And it was like. (laughs) Yeah, disability is a spectrum and everyone has different things that they are more and less capable of doing or feeling or ways of being. I don't know if I have super intelligent thoughts about it, but it's something that I'm still actively grappling with in a, in a large part because of these books where I can now recognize a little bit better, oh, my partner is less good at this thing and that doesn't make him less worthy, but I need to build some accommodations around this just like he needs to build accommodations for me when I'm really struggling with something. I think that it's just such a good message with every single character, all of the heroes, all of the heroines in this book, that there is no one set standard way of doing or being or living as much as there's this societal myth that there is this normal, whatever that means in that standard. And that means that you need to actually get to know a person and figure out how your tendencies need to be accommodated to meet their needs and vice versa with every interaction that you have with somebody who's significant in your life in any capacity. And I think that this book also does a really great job. This series does a really great job of breaking down the fact that while that might sound kind of overwhelming, a lot of us are already doing that work every single day and it's built into our capacity. We just don't always think about it. But when we start to actively think about it, we get better at accommodating the people we love in our lives and making sure that we're communicating in a way that meets everybody's needs. 
I agree. I also want to clarify before we break this episode, before we were talking about how there's no one hierarchy that defines the world. And I want to clarify, I think specifically that we do kind of have one one hierarchy right now, you could argue, which is white supremacy and colonialism mm-hmm. on a global scale. But I think what Maggie and I were trying to talk about a little bit earlier is that different different marginalizations affect people differently. And it's it's more like a Venn diagram, like a map, like Maggie was saying, like a mapped Venn diagram than it is a pyramid. Yeah. Even if we can all, even if we can blame everything on white supremacy and colonialism, which we should all try to fight up against in different ways and different means. And even if that can map out a lot of other separate oppressions, it's important for you to recognize, at least in your personal life, that your feelings are valid and you should give yourself space to feel them because you can't, you can't actively fight for justice if you don't. (laughs) No, it's so true. It's so true. I think that when I think about a lot of this work, and this is just a visualization that works for me, you remember, this is such a probably 90s kid sort of thing, but I'm going to throw it out there. Do you remember potentially being in math class when you were, we were younger and there were these big projector things that you had clear pieces of paper that were put down, and the, but you could put multiple clear pieces of paper down to change the image on the screen? Yes. To me, the basis of the projection is the hierarchy of white supremacy and colonialism, but then you can add, and you need to be adding constantly other things like sexism and disability and class and things on top of that to really get the full picture of identity. Yeah. But even then, that doesn't mean that just because somebody has a lot of different marginalizations, that their experiences are going to be, I I, I guess we don't, we can't measure it out as in this is more and less valid. That's just not how feelings and experience work. Because I think that like a lot of times when we talk about marginalization, there's an assumption that marginalization always means that there's a large amount of trauma associated with that. And I think that that is true and can be true for a lot of people, but it's not always true in the same ways for every single person. And every single person has way different feelings about where they might fall on the myriad of different hierarchies that work in the world. Yes. So, so you have to you have to think in a really nuanced way about all of this stuff, I think, especially and most importantly, when you're interacting with a specific individual. My experiences with physical disability are personally less traumatic than my experiences with becoming an acquired neurodivergent person because of the nature of how both of those things have affected my life, you know? But technically speaking, from the outside, you might think that they were both equally traumatic or bring up equally emotional responses from me, and they just don't, you know? That's obviously just one example, but I feel like the easiest way is to talk about it in relation to yourself. <laughs> yes. Thank you for helping explain that. Because I was like, oh, wait, I don't know if we gave that that enough time <laughs> to for like to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for sure. <laughs> is there anything else you wanted to talk about in relation to these books? I'm really excited to see the other things that Talia Hibbert has written, especially because from what I understand, they fall into even more of like a potentially typical erotica romance kind of parts of the genre. And they have very, I would say, stereotypical erotica covers, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But I will say for me personally, would probably have kept me from picking them up, which is stupid, but I'm going to be honest about it. Like, (laughs) uh, problematic. (laughs) 
we're all problematic. This is my red flag. <laughs> but now I'm really interested to see the ways that she's, that either she's grown as a writer or that she's actually been pushing these boundaries from inside the genre for ages and just kind of didn't really blow up until Get a Life Chloe Brown blew up, you know? Yeah, I'm excited to see what else she comes up with, too, because my understanding, I looked it up, and I think she's younger than me, Maggie. She might be your age exactly, which is amazing. Oh, yeah? Well, yeah, for someone that's written so much, I mean, hot damn. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I'm excited to see. I just didn't know that she was my age. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited to see how she develops as a writer moving forward. I think that's also really interesting not to go too far down a rabbit hole, but I think it also goes to show that you can write a book that's super relatable that doesn't necessarily lean into the flashier parts of kind of young millennial slash old Gen Z culture. Because we talked about One Last Stop by Casey McQuiston two weeks ago, and that book really leans into a lot of those themes like meme culture, like astrology, you know, like all the flashy things. And that was fabulous. I really liked that about this book. But these three books incorporate technology, but don't really lean into that. And you can still have a really relatable book about what it's like to be in your late 20s, early 30s without necessarily leaning into all of that either. Yeah, I think One Last Stop ended up being very much novel for people Maggie and my age versus I think Get a Life, Chloe Brown has a broader scope in terms of audience. Yeah, for sure. The Brown But it's still relatable. Time. Yeah, but it's still relatable to you and me too. Yeah, exactly. All right. These are great books. I hope people read them. They do a really good job of inclusion. That's it. That's all what I have to say. What are you reading? Say. Oh, what am I reading? Well, I'm I'm reading <laughs> I'm reading Actor A. G. Brown. And am I reading anything else? Oh, I'm reading a are we allowed to talk about that? This book that hasn't been published that we're gonna interview for? Or oh, we wait? I don't know. Harmony and I have a really exciting yeah, we have a really exciting interview coming up in March that we're reading advanced readers copies for. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so I'm well, reading the, that book. The, the interview is happening in February. The the book comes out and the interview is being published in March. Yeah. So we'll we'll wait. Hopefully that ends up going through. I just don't want anything to jinx it. So I'm not going to talk about it on air. In addition to that, I'm reading a lot about critical media literacy, which isn't a book, but comprises lots more reading. <laughs> What about you, Maggie? I am rereading The Night Circus by Erin Morgenstern, which if you listened to our 22, 22 goals is just something I'm rereading for me. It's not part of the podcast. It's not part of work at all. I'm just rereading it because I love that book. And I'm also reading Night of the Dragon by Julie Kagawa. Ooh, very nice. All right. Is there anything else we, we touch on? Do we still talk about good things we did this week? I don't want to. We haven't. <laughs> I don't want to talk about good we things I've really. done. <laughs> so we're, we're yeah, not going to do I think that. we can skip that part. <laughs> Next week, we're coming to you with another one of our fun episodes. And then the week after that, we're talking about Honey Girl by Morgan Rogers. So we are keeping the romance train alive. Yeah. Read Honey Girl. It's amazing. It's beautiful. It makes my heart melt. All right. Is that it? <laughs> All right. Talk to you soon. Goodbye. Bye. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website rebelgirlsbook.club and clicking read along with the show. 
You can follow us at RGBCPod on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Rebel Girls Book Club is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.